right, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. No matter where you may find yourself as you listen to this and you tuned in to the only sports podcast with brains and bars, you're tuned into another episode of It's a Black and White Thing. I am one half of the dynamic duo. I am Carlos Johnson. You can call me A1. You can also call me Dan. You can check out every episode of It's a Black and White Thing by going to the podcast app of your choice. Um, searching brains and bars, or you can also follow us on our YouTube page. Most episodes of the podcast um, are on the YouTube page um, by searching brains and bars. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, tell a friend, tell a friend, it's those boys again. The more you do that, the more people are then put in tune with the podcast. Um, in his absence, shout out to my homie Award, who's the other half of the team. Go to IamAward.com for everything Award related. Um, he's got a couple of battles that have dropped. Um, him, uh, well, I shouldn't say dropped, but the VODs are available. Um, Award versus Ill Will from RBE's Max Out is available on VOD now. And also, shout out to iBattle, shout out to Lex. His battle versus Excel is also out. Uh, on the iBattle app, you can cop the you can cop that battle in particular, or you can get the the entire event um, on VOD. And as someone who was there over the weekend for that event, it was a really dope event. Every battle is good. Every battle has replay value. So, with that being said, um, now we got those particulars out the way. I want to, um, as you can see by the title, we have a special guest joining us this afternoon. Um, he is uh, he is the head of Sports Talk 2319, the one of one podcast. He is Rashad Phillips, and I'm going to bring him on the screen here. Rashad, how are you doing this afternoon, sir? Um, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, A1. I really I really do. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. I appreciate you coming on. Um, so we got a, we got a lot of topics we want to cover here this, yeah. this afternoon in our conversation, but I, I want to start off uh, by starting kind of close to home, and then we'll kind of spread out and we'll get to the NCAA tournament um, and NBA prospects and things of that nature. So um, you're from Detroit, right? Played at Detroit. Yes, sir. Played at Detroit Mercy. Now, one of the uh, the reasons this interview even came about, I got to give a shout out to my homie, Jesse Abbey. Jesse is, um, he's a Detroit, he's an army brat, but he was born in Detroit. He's Detroit through and through. Tigers, um, Lions, yeah. you know, Pistons, all of that good stuff. Michigan. And so he he pointed me your direction when we're talking about his, his your, uh, your, uh, positional dictionary, right? And the and the, the definitions and things that you come up with. So he's like, bro, check him out, reach out to him. He's real approachable. See if you can get him on the show. So I gotta say, shout out to my guy Jesse. This is part of this is uh your doing. Shout out to Coach Wilford who helped put this all together as well. Shout out to him. We appreciate you, sir. But I want to start close to home. And I, you know, when we talk about Detroit basketball, we're you know, we might think about the Fab Five. We might think about, you know, for those who have are our age, right? Um, as you get kind of into the 2000s, you might think of the Pistons team with Chauncey um, and Rashid and, and the like. But I want to talk about I want you to get into just the local Detroit scene. Like what was that scene like from your time and and even today? Well, the scene was actually easy for me because I was actually born into the scene. You know, my father, Virgil Phillips, started his own youth center, community center in 1979. Um, right on the east side of Detroit, right around the corner from my house off East State Fair in 75. So I was pretty much born into the sport, you know, born into the community, um, whereas I just had it in my backyard. You know, um, the likes of the Steve Smiths and the 
Chris Webbers and the Jalen Rose and the Anderson Hunts and the Derek Coleman's. Like I seen these guys at five, six, seven years old. And I was able to, you know, grow up under the likes of those type of guys. So for me, I was pretty much born into the game. Uh, that's what's up. Like that, that those five names you name right there, like it got me thinking, like, yo, like Detroit might be like if you talk about all time players that come from one particular city or region, like you might be looking at Detroit. I know New York obviously has a storied history. Philly's got a, a history, but yo, California. Yeah, yeah. That's wow, that's high. So um so if you could then just from a high school aspect, because obviously you just named five NBA players, right? High level NBA players. But in terms of just like on that level, um, from a high school aspect, if you could put together like an all Detroit starting five, like of the greatest high school players from the Detroit area, like what would that what would that starting five be? Wow. Uh, my number one pick would be Chris Weber. Um, Chris, Chris will always be number one in my book, no matter what. So uh, Chris Weber would be number one. I would start, um, Chris Weber at power forward. I would put Derek Coleman at the stretch big. Mm. I would put Spencer Haywood at center. Um, uh, <laughs> Curtis Jones at the point guard position. And um, Steve Smith at the combo guard. That will be my starting five for Detroit. Yo, I'm gonna have to like. I, so I might. I'm gonna. I'm gonna clip this up and I'm gonna post this out. And I'm gonna be like, look, man. I need y'all to rep your city, rep <laughs> your hood, because I need to see who got a starting five that's gonna be better than that. That's a tough five, man. You know, you got a guy like uh, Chris Weber who embodied the power forward position at that time, uh, a mythic figure amongst uh, our community. Right. Then, you, you, then you look at Derek Coleman where Chris Weber is kind of a fabric of Derek Coleman. Derek, DC was one of the first original stretch fours mm -hmm. that could do a little bit of everything yeah. as far as post up, knock down long range shots, um, defend block shots. And then you got Curtis Jones, who was a wizard with the ball. Um, a lot of people don't know his background, but this this dude may be pound for pound, talent for talent, the best to ever come out in Detroit. You got Spencer Haywood, who is the reason why college players can leave school early because of him. Right, Spencer right. Haywood took that to the Supreme Court, played at my alma mater, University of Detroit. And then you have Steve Smith, who was kind of one of a one of one player at his time, six, nine could play point guard, could play shooting guard. He was a little bit of a combo guard, um, did everything for Michigan state and had a, a very, very, very productive career in the NBA. So, I mean, those are the five guys that you're up against. <laughs> that's hey, that's, and so you name some names of that. I mean, like Spencer Haywood, granted he's, he's a little bit before my time. So, I know about Spencer's impact, right? In terms yeah. of about the Supreme Court case, but I didn't know that he was from Detroit. So I mean, like, man, I mean, DC, like again, DC is someone that I watch playing at why well, I, I might have been a little bit too young to catch him at Syracuse, but definitely watch him play in the league. And yeah. like one of the the OGs when it comes to like a stretch four, a stretch big who could step out and hit a jumper. Yeah. That's 
That's pretty tough. Like I'm, I'm definitely gonna put this out. I'm like, all right, y'all, give me a starting five that's gonna compete with that one because you're gonna have a hard time coming up with a five. No that's, doubt. That's what's up. So one of the things as as I was doing some research and you know just following your your timeline and looking around, I see that you are nicknamed Yoda. And even when we put out like the promo to say, yo, he's going to Rashad's going to be joining us on the show. Tune in. Like I've had a couple of people reply like Yoda. So. <laughs> for those who are uh, uneducated, how did you get the nickname Yoda? Where does that come from? Uh, it came from when I started my training academy about uh, about 15 years ago. I started my own training academy, Skills Unlimited. And I had a, I had about 150 students, mm. um, male and female, um, from elementary all the way to, you know, to the pros. And I had one of the college coaches, Lance Bayless, came up to me and was like, you know, I was training his son. He came up to me. And he was like, you know what? You are like the Yoda to all of your students. It's like you always have the answer. You always have the correct advice for your students. And I just wanted to give you that name. And and me being a huge Star Wars person growing up, my mom loved Star Wars. So as a kid growing up, kind of learning um, the background story of Yoda. I just felt that it was something that it stuck with me and it was fitting. And um, I have fun with it. That's what's up. That's, so you're a huge Star Wars guy. Yeah. So your favorite, which which of the so have you watched like the complete series or, or are we just talking about the first uh, three episodes from back in the day? I've watched them all, um, but I'm I'm old school, you know, so I like the Empire Strikes Back. OK, that's what's up. That's my favorite one. That's what's up. That's what's up. All right. So let's jump into your your college career. So you, you go to the University of Detroit. Yeah. Um, so I know that just again, doing research, you weren't as highly recruited, but you go to a basketball camp that includes Kobe Bryant. You do your thing there and that gets the attention of other yeah. schools. Mm -hmm. So if you hadn't gone to University of Detroit, like what would have been your second choice? Georgia Tech. Mm. Bobby Crimmins was huge on allowing small point guards to have success at Georgia Tech. If you look at the lineage of the guards, Stephon Marbury, Travis Bess, Mark Price, you know, Kenny Anderson, you know, like he's always had guards that could really wiggle with the ball and run the offense through. So I kind of fit that that DNA. So um, if I wouldn't wouldn't have been a, a prop 48 um, Georgia Tech probably would have been the the choice. Man, that's tough. That's yeah. All right, cool, cool. So, so the out oh, four years at Detroit. Um, yeah, I think your senior year you win the Francis Naismith Award for best uh, player six feet and under. Correct in the country. In the country, yes, sir, yes, sir. And so during your time in college, who was the best player that you faced? That's a tough question, man. I played against a lot of great players. Um, I would do a disservice to just pick one. Right, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I played against so many great players. I played probably my toughest matchup was probably Damon Stringer. Okay. Damon Stringer. Let me give you a little history on Damon Stringer. Damon was Mr. Basketball in Ohio. He went to he signed to go to Ohio State and he won freshman of the year in the Big Ten. Mm. And then he transferred to Cleveland State. So that's letting you know what kind of player he was. Right. Right. Okay. 
he was in my conference. So I had to battle him twice a year. And he was just he was strong. He was cerebral. He didn't miss a lot of shots. He was tough. He had a deceptive, deceptive quickness about him. Um, and he just knew his playbook. So he was one of the tougher matches that I've ever faced um, because uh, you had to be on your P's and Q's to compete against a high level player like that. Um, Jamal Crawford was probably the toughest player I had to defend because of his size. And he moved quicker than I did, but he was six, five. Right. Yeah. He was tall. He could shoot. He was really wiggly with the ball. He had crazy handle and he had a flair about him that even his missed shots looked like they were going to go in, you know? So he was tough to defend. Baron Davis um, was kind of the, the most brutal matchup that I've ever had because he was so powerful. He was so polarizing. He was so quick and explosive off the dribble. And then on top of that, he just had, a, again, a flair about him that made him dangerous. Um, so the, like those guys, Karan Butler, I played against him at UConn. Karan was, Kobe gave him the name Tough Juice. And that is the probably the most fitting name of who he is because he was probably the toughest <clears throat> player that I played against outside of Kenyon Martin and a, a guy named Doc Taylor from Cleveland State. So I played against, I mean, obviously I played against Kobe Bryant in high school. So right, I, yeah. I played against so many great players. I, and I, I feel bad because I know I've left some names out, but I'll be here all day telling you about the, the, the tough matchups that I've encountered. So I yeah now I apologize I wanna I wanna take a step back because you mentioned playing against Kobe at you know what what which camp was that again? It wasn't a camp it was the Magic Round Ball class. Magic Round Ball that's right okay so what it I mean going into that obviously Kobe has this I mean all the hoopla surrounding Kobe at this time yeah he's number one player in the country you know so is there is there a chip on your shoulder knowing you going into this game like I gotta I gotta put on and show who I am and, and let and put people on notice that, Hey, I got some game too. I was born with a chip. <laughs> so I, I didn't, I didn't have to put one on my shoulder for that game. I was already born with a chip on my shoulder. So for me going into that game, I was, I was going to be what I had already been doing. You know, I was Oakland County player of the year. I was all state. I was a number two point guard in the state of Michigan. So I had a little local clout, you right. know, from having a chip on my shoulder. So matching up against Kobe Bryant was, I really was excited for that. Like I, I, I wanted that matchup. You know, if you want to be great, then you got to play against great players, you know? And for me, I was never gonna, you know, you know, dodge the smoke. Like I, I'm gonna lock horns with whoever you put in front of me. And, um, you know, it was a great game. Not only Kobe was in that game, but Tim Thomas and, and, Richard Hamilton and Jamal McGlure and Jason Hart and Shaheen Holloway. And, you know, uh, I mean, just so many wonderful players. Um, so you had to bring your hard hat or you or you were going to get embarrassed. Yo, you keep bringing, man, like this is it's bringing back a lot of great men. Like Tim Thomas was a baller, right? Villanova, Villanova, right? With the Nova. He only went there for one year, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, OK, yeah, man. OK. OK. So let, I'll jump back into the college. Um, side of things. So 
you know, the Detroit teams had a couple of upsets in the tournament. Um, as a 10 seed, they upset St. John's, Felipe Lopez, young Ron no, Artes, I believe. No, no upsets. No. Oh, my apologies. My apologies. My apologies. Um, so they defeated uh, St. John's. Um, right. And then the next year you guys defeat UCLA. Sure. Right. So um, can't. So I'll, I'll say this from this standpoint. Right. As a that UCLA game, you guys are a 12 seed against the yeah. five. Now, from the outside world, right, they're looking at that as an upset, just from that standpoint. The optics, the optics. The optics, yeah. they view that as an upset, right? And so sure. if for those who haven't, I mean, my, me, myself, right, for those who haven't been in that situation mm-hmm. where obviously when you're playing these tournament games with fans, when they see that a seed that is that is not as regarded, highly regarded as a UCLA, when they're going to pull off this win, they're jumping into it. So just kind of take, if you can, from what you remember of that game, like walk us through like what your emotions were as this game is coming to a close, you're going to pull off this win, and now you're going to be the talk of the tournament because you, from again, optically, you pulled off this upset against, I mean, UCLA is a story program. Sure. Um, you know, for, for me, for us personally as a team, we were the best mid-major team in college basketball. We were we were 24 and five mm-hmm. going into that game. 24 and five. Think about that. That's a lot of that's a lot of wins. Correct. Yes, sir. You know, so from our standpoint, we had already knew that um, we were confident going into this game. Um, we were confident in playing anybody we wanted to play um, because we trusted we trusted our own skills. We trusted our system. Um, and we were just a hungry team. You had myself, you had Jermaine Jackson, you had Bakari Alexander, you had Desmond Ferguson, Daniel Y, Walter Crabb, Darius Beelan, you know, Cliff Austin, Kareem Maine. You know, it was just it was a team full of savages, man. You know, like these you got to think about this, man. Like I'm from the east side of Detroit. You know, J- Jermaine Jackson's from the east side of Detroit. Bakari's from the southwestern side of Detroit. What, you know, like these are kids on this roster that you're not going to move them. Right. So when we got UCLA, we drew that up. We were excited. They had Baron Davis and, and Earl Watson um, and Matt Barnes was on that team and Rush. Like they had a team full of NBA guys, but it didn't really move us. So when we won that game, it was almost like we knew we were going to win. We never went in like, oh, this is UCLA. We're in trouble. It was it was never that the, in, in preparation to UCLA. It was like they they don't they not going to know what's going to hit them when we step on the floor with them. Mm. And that's what happened. And, and that's not trying to, you know, that's not taking anything away from UCLA. I, I'm telling you what was going through the mind of us. Right. We didn't really care what the what the TV said and the newspapers and who who was storied and all that. Like, we didn't really care about all that. Like we was going to meet you in a dark alley and we were going to come out. And I mean, I am you and you have, I mean, you have to have that mindset, right? Like you have to, to play high level division one, whether we're talking about, it's a blue blood. Yeah. The mid majors. Yeah. You have to have that mindset and the attitude that no matter who you come up against, no matter who you play against, like you have to see me. You're going to have to see me. You can do all the talking. You can do all the posturing. The name on the front of the jersey. But at the end of the day, it's me and you. That's really what it was at the end of the day. You got to see me. 
So let's uh, and if you can, like after the game, you know, your father, um, I saw that he started a program right to try to get kids off the streets um, and, 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 and impart into them the game of basketball and the things that it could teach amongst yeah. other things. Right. Yeah. Uh, with the reach Academy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at after you defeat UCLA, like what is that conversation like with with family members and with your father of, of yo, like yeah. we just like you said, we we had that chip on our shoulder. We yeah. came in, they had to see us and we did what we had to do. So what is that conversation? Yeah. My pops was kind of, you know, he had the same mentality that we had. Right. So it wasn't he just, you know, this is what we do, son. You know, this is what we do. When, when when they line up the person across from you, we gonna come out of it, you know? And that's kind of, my dad is kind of the master motivator, you know, like without him in my ear um, all the way through, like I, I, I wouldn't have been a great player, you know, without my father's just motivation. My dad always motivated me to be above and beyond a good player, go above and beyond with your craft. So after that win was just a, a, a testament to what he had instilled in me as a kid. So now as a parent, like I can, I got two daughters. So as a parent, being able to watch your child compete at the highest level in front of 60,000 people and come out victorious as a parent, like that's the feeling you, you build your kid for that moment. So I was happy that both of my parents was able to, you know, experience that win, um, at that particular time. Dope, dope, dope. So we're here with Rashad Phillips, Sports Talk 2319's on one of one podcast on It's a Black and White Thing. Um, and so let's jump into, I wanna have you compare and contrast how the game has changed since you've played. But <laughs> so what it was like when you played versus what it is today. Yeah, like I don't wanna sound like some old, you know, <laughs> the, the old bitter guy, you know, cause a lot of a lot of times people come off that way for me. I love the way the NBA is today. You know, I'm one of those guys that I, I embrace evolution, you know. Um, unfortunately for me as a player, I felt that I was I was one of those guys that was before his time. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at the game, when mm -hmm. I was playing a five, nine, five, ten hybrid guard was kind of taboo you know we we wasn't supposed to be great scores we wasn't supposed to shoot from the fourth level we wasn't supposed to have all this flair we were supposed to dribble the ball past half court pass it cut through and and let the play develop well for me i wasn't that type of player um so i was kind of a, a outcast mm. in my era you know um but when you look at Today's game, everything that I stood for when I played is what is embraced in today's game, which is the long range shooting, the aura, the magnetism, the, 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 the dancing style, the hybrid guards, the Damian Lillards, the Trey Youngs, the Steph Currys, the John Morant. Like these guys are accepted today. They're celebrated. They're drafted. But when I was playing, no, nah, I was I was an outcast. Ah, man, man. And, you know, I think that's something that. So I, I'll use a guy like Russell Westbrook, right? Like, I, I feel like I'm a Russell Westbrook fan in part because of all the slander that he would get 
you know, back, especially those early OKC days when OKC is on the rise. Why is he not playing like a traditional guard? Why is he not, you know, <laughs> why is he why is he taking shots away from Durant? He does like and I became a fan because I'm like, guys, like like you said, the game is evolving. It's changing. And that traditional point guard is something that that is we're moving away from. And right. like, not to say that we still don't have guys who had a few of them. Right. Right. You have guys who are able to have a balance, right, of being able to score, but also be able to set up the team. And granted, Russ is a triple double machine these days and he's still getting hate. But that's neither here nor there. But but again, like we just, we're seeing this evolution. And so, like, I'm, I'm assuming those guys that you named the Jama Rants, um, the Damian Lillard's like those. If if you were to put someone up on the type of player that you were, those are the names that you would use in terms of if someone wants to be able to to kind of, I guess, say, hey, Rashad, what kind of player who who is today's equivalent? Those would be the names that you would choose. Yeah, my equivalent would probably be Damian Lillard would probably be the guy that um, plays a lot like me with a kind of a sprinkle of of, of Steph Curry, you know, um, like, and they're both hybrid guards in my sense. So like I was that fabric, you know, I was, yeah. I was like that. They're just, they're, they're six, three, right. I'm five, nine, they're six, three. So they're, they're bigger, but they share the same style. So as you talk, like I, it, it's leading to, to, to want to ask some different questions. So coming up, being a, a smaller guard, like who were the players that you looked up to? especially if they were closer in size or yeah. stature. Isaiah Thomas is, is the player that I looked up to as a kid, you know, growing up in Detroit, watching Isaiah Thomas career, him winning a national title in 81 with Indiana, Indiana, and then coming to Detroit and pretty much changing the landscape of the city of Detroit with, with uh, you know, back-to-back -back championships. You know, the Pistons was, was one Isaiah Thomas injury away from actually three-peating. If Isaiah doesn't turn his ankle against the Lakers in game six, they win and they three-peat. You know? So Isaiah was a huge inspiration um, to what I was trying to become. And also um, uh, Chris Jackson out of LSU. You know, Now he's Mahmoud Abdul-Raoul. But he was a huge uh, inspiration to me as a kid because I patterned my game after like Isaiah Thomas and, and like Chris Jackson, those are the two guys that I was trying to emulate growing up as a kid. I'm going to tell you, I'm from Louisiana. And, you know, growing up when you have him, Clarence Gilbert, Stanley Roberts, Shaq, like like they were appointment viewing. You know, yeah. when their games would come on, the entire family is sitting around the TV. Absolutely. To watch those those uh, Dale Brown teams. They were they were a lot of fun to watch. A lot of fun. Yes, to they watch. were. They were. Uh, so let's keep going on with the let's stick with the college uh, theme here. Like I know you talked about, you know, thing how things have changed in the evolution, right? But obviously, analytics has come to play a huge part in the game, not just from the NBA, but on down. You watch a team like Baylor, who won the national championship, who takes a lot of three pointers, right? Um, especially from their, you know, their guards with Teague, um, with uh, Mitchell, Mitchell, yeah. So do you think that the three point shot, just because these the kids can't shoot as well as the pros, do you think that the reliance on the three point shot is hurting the college game at all? I don't think it's hurting the game at all. I, I don't. I, I, Baylor actually won doing that. No, I, I don't think it's hurting the game. I think what it does. I mean, it's it's 
you know, too much of anything can kill you, you know? Right. So I, I think that the three pointer should be used in moderation, but if, if you're great at it, I believe you should take it. And this is coming from a person who took nine three pointers a game at my senior year. <laughs> so well, like you really are an anomaly, like for that time. Yeah, like, I was looked at like, bro, you shooting too many threes. Like yeah. I was I shot nine, I attempted nine threes a game my senior year at 41%, and I led the country with 136 makes. So again, I'm a supporter of the three-point line if you have the ability to make them at a high clip. So everything needs to be done in moderation. Okay. Okay. So, you know, the one and done rule, which I believe, I don't think that, I can't remember if the NBA is, is getting ready to remove it or not, but I think that is coming down the pipe. If there's been a lot of talk about the college game and saying that, you know, the fact that there aren't, these kids aren't staying for two, three, four years, that it's hurting hurting the product overall because you don't have any st- superstars, you don't have a Zion Williamson that peep, that eyes are attracted to. So if the NBA removes that one-and-done rule, right, and allows kids like Zion, who probably would have went straight to the league, um, I'm pretty sure Kay Cunningham probably would have went straight to the league, straight you know, from high school, do you think the removal of the one-and-done rule would hurt or help the game of college basketball. I'm kind of in the middle of that. I don't think, I don't think it does neither mm. because college basketball will never go out of business, you know, regardless of what the rules are, because playing professional sports, as far as the NBA, it's like a one per like less than 1% chance that it's going to be you. Mm. So where do the, so where do the other 99% of people go? You got to go to college. Fact. So, Opening up a door for 1% of people doesn't mess up the other 99% that's trying to get through the other door. That's how I feel about that. Okay. Okay. Um, So if there's one thing from the college game that you, I'm sorry, let me, let me rephrase that question. What's the one thing about the college game that you would change that you believe would improve it? I think you should move the three point line back. And open up the floor a little bit because the players are are better. I, I believe you if you can move the college line, you know, even if you moved it to the NBA three, you know, um, to just open it up a little bit more or just 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 short of the NBA line. I think you'll you'll open it up a little more and and allow players to really display their individual skill sets. So I for me, it's either either has to do with the block charge call. I feel like nine times out of ten, I disagree. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that's that's just a referee thing. That's just what it's just a bailout call, man. Yeah, and the other thing is, like, I am not a fan of zone. I mean, shout out to Jim Behind, but I hate zone. Like, I want you to man up, man up, guard your man, and take their hearts from them. Like back when I used to play like rec league, like, and I was a captain, I always tell my teams, look, shot your shooting comes and goes, right? Like. Shot making, I, I never, I mean, it's a, I never understood the phrase, it's a miss and make league. Uh, when they, when the NBA guys were talking to you, start playing rec league and like, I know I can shoot, I know I can, but it's not falling tonight. But I tell them, defense is an every possession attitude. Like, if you defend, that energy then transfers over to the offensive side and you can get, maybe if you're down, you get some stops, you start to score, that you feel that energy, you get hype, you're making more stops, so on and so forth. So, but yeah, zone, get it out. Here's why here's why that's kind of hard to do, because when you're coaching, you have to look at it from a personnel standpoint. So what if you recruit 
all slow-footed guys. <laughs> I got to be a better recruiter. But what? But, but I'm just saying, like, if you're in a situation, if you're in a situation where you you have a recruiting year, and your 12 players are all slow-footed, you're not you're not going to go out there and try to man up Duke. You're going to put them in a two-three zone and, and say, I, I just hope Duke miss and we can rebound. So it, it it's. I think the zone personally, I don't like it, but I understand it because it's a it's a personnel decision. Like if you got a a great shot blocker on the back end and, and a great anticipator, then you may want to go one three one because you want to use that personnel's gift. So a lot of times the zone in college highlights the personnel, or it hides the weakness in the team, um, so they play it. Yeah, I completely listen. I completely understand it. I just will always personally. I get your personal yeah. feeling. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. As a, Absolutely. As a, as a coach, you get twelve slow-footed guys that that feet are slower than rush hour traffic. You're, <laughs> you're going to try to play zone because you know you can't guard Zion and those type dudes. Touche, touche. I'll take the L. I don't lose a lot of arguments. I, I lost that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to save your job, bro. Like I don't want you <laughs> trying to play man to man, and then you you got them slow footed guys, and it's like you got to make an adjustment, man. I'm trying to keep you employed. Facts, facts. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, so let I want to I wanted to discuss your overseas career because like I had a conversation with one of my homies, and I can't remember who we were talking about, um, but I was just like, man, like obviously the NBA is the top league in the world. You know, the top athletes the best of the best make it there. And it's really, you have to fight to maintain your spot unless you're one of these superstars, right? It's always a fight to maintain your spot because there's always a draft every year, free agency. Someone's coming along who could take, take your place. And so I said, you know, if you go overseas, like you really love the game because you're going to a place that you're unfamiliar with, you might not speak the language and you're playing at, you're playing for obviously for money, but you're playing for the love for real and, and the hopes that your career will lead you back to the States. Right. So I'll, if you can, like you play for, oh, forgive me. Probably Italy, Italy, Eroni, Navarro. I'm, I'm Navarro. Navarro. Okay. I, at least I got close. I forgot to put it in my notes, but that first day when you step off the plane and you're in Italy, like what's going through your mind when you step into another place to play play basketball? How did I get here? Mm. Where am where am I at? How did I get here? Like what do, what do I supposed to do? Like what 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 is this? Why why am I here? That was that was you know again I'm 23 mm. 23 yeah. 24 so you know I was I was bitter about that. I didn't want to go overseas. I didn't I didn't feel I didn't feel like I belonged overseas. I felt like I belonged in the NBA. So it was like a punishment to me. I'm like, man, why am I here? Like, I don't want to be here. Like, I didn't I didn't work my whole life to play in Italy. Yeah. You no. Know? And it had nothing to do with. Italy, it was the fact that I felt that me personally, like I didn't do all what I did to get here. Right. You know, and so that's that was that was the thought process. It's what I felt. So, like, how were how were you received by like the coaching staff? Because I've heard that from a when an American comes to an overseas team, you know, or for to an international team, like they're they're expecting you to be really good, really high level, right? Um, in most cases, and so like, what was your reception 
when you played with Italy and some of the other places that you moved around? I mean, they treated me well in Italy. You know, my first game, my first game as a professional overseas, I broke the scoring record. So um, I scored 51 points my first game um, in Italy. You can go look it up. It's documented. Um, I went 17 for 22 from the field, 15 from 18 from the free throw line. We won. It was an overtime thriller. I led the league in scoring um, before eventually I, I went home after like eight games because the money started. They stopped. You know, the money was funny. But, yeah, I ended up leading the league in scoring when I was there as a rookie. I had 50. I had some 46.44. I like four 40 point games, a 50 point game, and the rest were like 20s because the coach tried to dump down my scoring average before they stopped paying me. So it got really funny. So I ended up going home. But I was received well. The fans were great because I was like a fan favorite. Look, I'm little, I'm scoring a bunch of points. So everybody's loving me, right? You know, so. Man, man. So what's the best story that you can tell about your time overseas? I think the relationships that I built, I think my my funnest year um, was probably when I played in Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very tough league. I was first team all league with Khalil Alameen, who was a one of my favorite college point guards ever. Me and him were made first team all league. He was playing for Beshintosh. I was playing for Takal Spore. Um, and I just I just Will Solomon was over there as well. Like uh, Dave Dixon, who um, has a great podcast now with Alvin Snow. Um, I just developed a lot of friendships over there that I ha still have today. Um, it was a, a, I just really enjoyed playing in Turkey on the court and off the court. It was probably my, my funnest time. Just, you know, just being around the right people and, and really not being homesick. It was one of the few times I wasn't homesick when I played in Turkey because I just had so many friends there. That's what's up. That's what's up. So if you could give advice to a college player who's making that transition for the first time to plan overseas, what what would you impart to them? Find your inner peace. Mm. Find your inner peace. Because, again, like you said in the beginning, you're overseas now because it's 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 to make money. And now it's because you just you, you have some type of love for the game. Because it's, it's going to be a lot of empty gyms. It's going to be a lot of empty days. It's going to be a lot of self-reflection on why and who and what. So I, I would advise anybody to find your inner peace um, and, and start planning for what you're going to do next, even in the moment. Uh, I, that's great advice. Great advice. Um, I want to make another transition, right? Uh, you talked about running a basketball academy um, mm -hmm. and training players, but you also worked as a trainer with IMG, uh, with IMG Academy. So how did you get to that place of working with IMG Academy? Well, I was the head skills trainer at IMG Academy, um, just through relationships. Uh, a, a guy, uh, Brian Nash, was recruiting one of my kids out of my program uh, when he was at Duquesne. Um, and the kid name was Spencer Littleson, who ended up leading the country in three pointers this season at Toledo. Um, he ended up recruiting Spencer out of my program. Spencer signed with Duquesne and then ended up transferring out. So um, Brian noticed that I had a different ideology on training kids. 
training NBA players. I had my own training, my own training DVD, you know. Um, so I had everything's documented as far as me as a trainer. So I end up moving to Florida. I was moving to Florida anyway. So it just kind of made sense to kind of do that uh, while I was transitioning from the training world to the media space. Um, and it was, you know, I had a good time there. Cool, cool. So I heard you talk about your training ideology. Like what it, what was that ideology or what is that ideology? Well, that's a lot. I, I, it's a lot. I'll, I'll try to condense it for you. But for me, I see the game through a different lens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to instill, inject into my kids how to navigate the game of basketball physically and mentally. Um, I'm not a cone guy. I'm more of a imagination type of trainer. I like my kids to visualize um, the game. I like them to put themselves in, in, in great scenarios. I like them to put themselves in bad scenarios and we try to work our way out of it. So that's kind of the way that I've been able to train um, kids over the years. And it's, it's, it's shown to be very effective. Okay. Um, so that, I guess that leads me to you creating the uh, positional, excuse me, uh, metric or dictionary. Right. So like what was your inspiration for creating this? Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's what's yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, I'm just being honest because <laughs> when I was coming out of college, I think I was mislabeled like they didn't know what I was. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I've watched. Even before my time, I've watched players um, become mislabeled due to the fact that the game of basketball only tries to give you five slots, mm-hmm. which I think is it's it, it does a disservice to the game itself and it does a disservice to the, the players. You know, you go back, you know, watching the Detroit Pistons, right? I'm, I'm a Detroiter, so I always – my reference is the Detroit Pistons. When you look at Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah Thomas, they didn't really know what to categorize him as as well. So they called him, they called him, he, they said he wasn't pure, right? And you look at that Piston team with Dennis Rodman and Bill Lambeer, like Dennis Rodman was a hybrid post. Bill Lambeer was a stretch big. Isaiah Thomas was kind of a hybrid guard, point guard. Joe Dumars was a combo guard. So Chuck Daly did a great job of allowing his players to play outside of their slots. So as time progressed, when I came out of college, I was trying, they were trying to fit me into a slot that I didn't fit. They were trying to make me traditional. And I wasn't traditional. I was a hybrid guard. It's like you're trying to fit a car into a garage, but the car is too big for that garage. You know, it's not the car's fault. The garage just doesn't hold it. Right. So as time goes on, you look at a guy like Draymond Green, who was mislabeled. They called him a power forward. Like he wasn't a power forward. He was a hybrid post. So I just saw a lot of players um, really have a, a disservice done to their careers to a certain extent because the powers that be would slot them in only five slots. There's like 40 different style of basketball player. There's no way you can fit 40 styles into five slots. Right. True. True. So I heard you you mentioned Draymond as being a hybrid post, like who would be in today's game, who would be fit the slot of a hybrid guard? 
Uh, Russell Westbrook's a hybrid guard. Um, Steph Curry's a hybrid guard. Damian Lillard's a hybrid guard. Gilbert Arenas was a hybrid guard. You know, Jamal Murray as a hybrid. Like those guys are hybrid guards. Okay. Okay. So I, I if you wanted to, is there anyone who fits kind of that traditional guard mode? Yeah. Lonzo Ball is a traditional guard. Rajon Rondo is a traditional guard. Like John Stockton was a traditional guard. Mark Jackson was a traditional guard. Jason Kidd. Like there's, there's fabric to all of these terms. Like these terms, players fit these terms years ago. You know, it was just that the, the powers that be and the, and, and the gatekeepers didn't want to change the language. It was like, we're just going to stick with these five slots. But when you look at a Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman was not a power forward and he wasn't a small forward. He was a hybrid post. Right. That's what he was. You know, Kevin Garnett, hybrid post. Hakeem Olajuwon, hybrid post. Ben Wallace, hybrid post. So like these terms that that I've brought to light have already collected data over the years. Like this is not, this is nothing new here. It's just being brought to light from my platform. Okay. Okay. Um, so how can your, your guy be helpful in building a team in today's uh, game of basketball? Easy. It's, it's plug and play. You know, it's like a video game. You look at what your team, you look at the matches, right? You could take take great teams and see what they had. Again, look at the Piston team and see they had Isaiah, point guard, Dumars, combo guard, stretch big, hybrid pose. Okay, that kind of works. So you can start drafting players that fit those slots. And that's what I've tried to do is give you different slots where you can see what matches. Let's look at the Lakers today. LeBron James is a dual forward. So you plug that. Anthony Davis is a hybrid post. Cool. Schroeder's a point guard. Cool. So you're you're learning what works depending on the position. So as a GM or as a recruiter, even recruiting kids out of high school, you're able to put your team, you're able to customize your team even better because now you have these slots where you can plug and play these kids or players. Okay. So is there is there a place where someone wanted to learn more about your positional definitions? Where could they is it where could they go to learn more? You can go to my, my website, sportstalk2319.com, and, and you can click on my position dictionary and I have an episode kind of breaking it down, which each term actually means. Okay. That's what's up. That's what's up. So we're here with Rashad Phillips um, from Sports Talk 2319. Um talking, you know, we've talked Detroit basketball. We talked about his career. Um, obviously, we just got into his positional definitions. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the NBA draft um, and the NCAA tournament that just concluded. Um, you know, who, uh, in your estimation, who was the player who has helped his draft stock um, through the tournament uh, going into this this year's draft? Uh, easily, Davion Mitchell from from Baylor. Um, I believe that this kid was on the fringe of maybe a first or second round pick. But as each game progressed, he started to really elevate himself as a dominant player. So I, I think he did himself the most service um, um, throughout the, the March Madness. You know, and watching Baylor, now granted, I'm, you know, I'm in the Midwest, so I'm in Big 12 country. Um, yeah. And 
I watched Baylor play, and I think for me, I caught them at the wrong time. You know, I caught them right off off the COVID pause. Um, yeah. so they play KU. That might have been their first or second game back. KU blows them out, and I'm going, yeah. uh, you know, typical yeah. Scott Drew. Like their teams perform, but when it really matters, they don't. They don't win the big, big matchups, right? Um, and so when they play Gonzaga, I was just so shocked at just Gonzaga. I watch a ton of Gonzaga games, and I just saw them running teams out the gym. Even yeah. like a team like Iowa, it's not like just the West Coast Conference because the knock on them is that Gonzaga, well, they're playing bums, quote-unquote, right, mm-hmm. in the West Coast Conference. So, of course, they fatten their record up against teams that can't compete. But I watched them play against Big Ten teams, against everybody. Yeah, and their I, non-conference schedule was huge. Like They play teams in their non-conference, and they right. win. Right, you know, and so like I just was shocked at just how much more physical uh, Baylor was, how much more athletic. I mean, they were. It felt like there were five, six, or seven guys on the court because everywhere, even when Gonzaga tried to rotate and and get the move the ball around, they were there every time. And you know, Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, yeah, shout out to those guys and and the job that they did. I want to ask you about Johnny Juzang because, you know. I when my when my own bracket I had you I had honestly Michigan State I thought Michigan State would make at least a Sweet Sixteen run so you know I had that eleven seed making it that far but Jaime Jaquez Juzang um, you know especially Juzang like I knew he could score but I feel like he went to another level in the tournament and so for a guy like him like yeah. what has the tournament done for his stock? I think it's done wonders. I mean, this I mean, this kid can can really play. This is a kid that actually went to Kentucky, you know, coming out of high school. So that alone should tell you that this kid must be the real deal. Now, when you watched him play, obviously you're watching a six foot six and a half shooting guard that does a terrific job of creating space, of getting his own shot. But not only him getting his own shot, he's able to make tough shots as well. Uh, And if you want to play at the NBA level, you're going to have to really establish yourself as a tough shot maker. And that's what Johnny Juzang uh, accomplished throughout March Madness. Anytime they needed a bucket, he was he was available to make shots going right, going left. Um, I I, I really like this kid. I believe he's an NBA scorer. Um, And if I was an NBA team, I would definitely draft him um, because he possesses a lot of the skill set that you need um, to have a long career at the highest level. Okay. So I want to talk about Kay Cunningham briefly. Um, I got an opportunity to go and watch him play again. I kept catching people coming off of COVID or injury issues. So I watched the, I think it was a double overtime game against Texas um, in Stillwater. Um, What do you, do you think he's the number one overall pick and who would you compare his game to? I do think he's a number one pick. Um, you know, he's a dual forward that um, does a terrific job of uh, accepting the responsibility of not only making himself better, but enhancing his surroundings. So from that standpoint, he reminds me a lot of, of Grant Hill. He's not as athletic as Grant Hill, not as quick as Grant Hill, but like his aura, the way he carries himself. Um, I just believe that this is a kid that improves your franchise from day one um, because he just has a special attraction about him. So that's why I really like Kay Cunningham. 
So I'm going to throw this comparison out here and I <laughs> and I maybe I feel free to rebuke me if you go, man, you way off, you way off base on here. When I watched him play, especially live, I got some Paul Pierce vibes. And this is what I say from Paul Pierce. Pierce, decent athlete. I didn't think he was an incredible athlete, but a good athlete. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Paul could get to his spot. And I yep. feel like with Cade, Cade knows how to at least at, at this stage, he knows how to get to his spots to get to his shot. I feel like he likes that mid-range. He'll hit you with some crossovers, get you going one way, and then pull up. So do you think – am I way off base with that with that comparison? I wouldn't say you way off base, but they're different positions. They're different styles. Like if you use my positions metric, one's a dual forward, the other one is a small forward. So they have different responsibilities. Paul Pierce was never uh, – uh, a, a guy that you allow to bring the, the ball up and, and initiate offense and be a facilitator. Paul Pierce was more like a Carmelo Anthony, more like a Bernard King, a guy that could post up mid, mid post, pinch post, give you two or three jab steps, get to his spot, elevate. K is an initiator. He's an engine. So that's why I like the K reminds me of the, the, the Grant Hills, the Luka Doncic, the, LeBron James, like they're dual forwards. Giannis, guys that dominate the ball and initiate for others. Like he's an engine. Okay. Paul Pierce was never an engine. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like I said, I I that was the first thought I had just because of that one aspect of his game. But I appreciate you enlightening me and showing and showing which I now that I think about it, I mean, K does initiate offense, um, has decent vision, can find guys. So I especially yeah. I can roll with his height. So I appreciate the enlightenment there. Um, <laughs> I do have, before we get ready to close out, we have a couple of more topics left. Right. Um, in your time working as a trainer, um, you know, you've had a chance to to work with some of these kids, like you said, kids who have made D1, had D1 offers and done really good things. I think there's a, there's talk of kids, especially with the transfer transfer portal of being entitled or being spoiled. Right. So when you look at what's happening with this transfer portal, do you see that kids who are just simply don't want to stick it out? Or do you see kids who view this as a business and are making what they seem to be as business decisions? Yeah, I don't see spoiled kids here. I I see opportunity. I I, I think as a kid in college, I think you should always um, exploit the opportunity. This is this is the time to exploit that. This is the time to exercise your opportunity. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to be one of those people that are looking at kids saying, oh, they're, they're spoiled, they're entitled, where there are, there are some kids out there like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not oblivious to that, but I don't think this is the scenario that we can use that narrative. I think this is just kids trying to exercise their option to maybe find something better for themselves. Coaches do it. Why can't kids do it? Coaches leave for better opportunities. You know, like Shaka left Texas and went to Marquette. He exercised his opportunity. So why can't a kid leave Texas and go to Marquette? You know, like I just think that we got to keep the goalposts right in the middle for everybody. True, true. And I and I and that's where I am with it. You know, I think I think sometimes kids, when they decide to make a move, they look at it as if, well, you don't want to stick it out. You know, I had to ride the bench. I had to wait my turn. It's just like 
there's a million schools out here. Why wouldn't I go someplace else? And you don't necessarily have to have a Kentucky across your chest or, right. or UCLA or Carolina. You can go to Oklahoma State. You can go to Texas. You can go to Marquette or Gonzaga now and, and yeah. find success and have just as many eyes on you. So right. I agree wholeheartedly. So we're closing out here with Rashad Phillips. Uh, and I want to give you the opportunity um, to you have the Sports Talk banner, 2319 banner behind you. And so I just want to give you a chance to talk about Sports Talk 2319 and uh, the people that work there. So the floor is yours, sir. I just want you to talk about your, your platform. Yeah. yeah, Sports Talk 2319 is, uh, you know, it's, you know, obviously the 2319 is how many points I scored in college, 2,319 points. But it's really it's really deeper than that. It's, it's really a numerical representation of overcoming obstacles. And everyone here at Sports Talk 2319 has some type of story of them overcoming obstacles. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of attracted to people that are willing to create their own lane, to, to, to be, to take the untraditional route to get to their answers. And when you look at guys that are guys and and gals that are part of Sports Talk 2319, that's where we're all kind of similar. You know, you 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 have uh, Justina, who is um, my head of evaluation. She's tremendous. She has her own brand. Uh, you know, Dominique Wilford is, is you know, he's kind of like everybody's manager, you know, and you, you got you got Max Van Auken, who I believe is will be the next uh, up and coming star. He's the next Colin Cowherd, in my opinion. He's he's terrific. I got Cameron Patterson, who's an evaluator who works alongside with me through this draft process. You know, I got my guy, Evan, you know, I, I got my graphic designers, you know, I got my, uh, my, my people who, uh, who, who write stories, you know, it's just like, I got so many, I, I, I can't name all of them, but like, we're all one conglomerate. And, and, and I like to surround myself with people like myself that are, that are looking to do things their own way and still get the result. Um, and, and that's what Sports Talk 2319 is about. So is it sportstalk2319.com? Yes, it is. All right. So you guys heard it. If you want to go and support, check out sportstalk2319.com um, and support the people there. Um, where can, other than that, is there any other place that we can find you, sir? Yeah, on you can find me on Twitter, RP3 Natural. You can find me on Instagram, Rashad Phillips2319. All right. All right. Cool. So Rashad, Mr. Phillips, I do appreciate you coming on and being with us today. Um, it has been a, a great experience, and hopefully we can have you again um to talk more about, about college game, pro game, and the like. So I appreciate you. Thank you for having me, A1. Talk soon. Yes, sir. Um, for those of you, thank you who have tuned in live. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Once again, you can find every episode of It's a Black and White Thing by going to the podcast app of your choice, searching for It's a Black and White Thing there. Same thing for YouTube, search Brains and Bars. Same for our Instagram, Twitter, um, and Facebook as well. We appreciate you in A Ward's absence. Go to IamAward.com for everything A Ward related, merch, battles, and music. And until next time, it's been a black and white thing. We thank you all for listening and watching, and we'll uh, see you see you around in a couple of days. Peace. <laughs>